0: everyone and welcome to social sport i'm your host emma zimmerman and this show is a member of the sidious mag podcast network on social sport i feature conversations with endurance athletes of all types committed to fostering social change these athletes are climate change activists their are mental health advocates promoters of more inclusive outdoor spaces and much more But what ties all of these athletes together is that they're committed to exploring the connection between sport and activism in their lives. This series of social sports on reds and eating disorders in sport is sponsored by Femme Protein Powder. Femme makes a plant-based powder, Femme Power Restore, that provides fuel and recovery with the active female in mind. I have personally had quite the journey in finding a protein powder that I enjoy. I find that a lot of them are heavy and hard to digest. But Fem Protein Powder is made of simple plant-based ingredients. It's easy to digest and it's delicious. You can go to femproteinpowder.com and use the promo code socialsport at checkout to get 10% off your order. That's femproteinpowder.com promo code socialsport. This is the final episode in our series on reds and eating disorders in athletes. What an incredible journey it's been over the past five episodes. I am honored to have hosted these conversations. I've learned a lot from these guests, and they've made me think critically about how eating disorders touch athletes of all genders, races, ethnicities, body sizes, and sexual orientations. In fact, this is exactly what I speak about with today's guests, Dr. Paula Quattromoni and David Proctor. Paula is one of the leading experts on sports nutrition and eating disorders. She is an Associate Professor of Nutrition at Boston University, and she spearheaded both the Nutrition Consult Program at Boston University and the Goals Program at Walden Behavioral Care, which is for competitive athletes with eating disorders. David Proctor is equally impressive. He's an elite runner who competed for Boston University from 2004 to 2009. During that time, he was the first collegiate athlete in New England to run a sub four minute mile. David and Paula join me today to talk about eating disorders in male athletes and how to make resources on REDS and eating disorders accessible to athletes of diverse identities. They're an incredible duo, and I am so excited to launch right into this important conversation. All right, David Proctor and Dr. Paula Quattrimoni, so excited to have you both on the show today. How are you two doing?
1: Very well, thanks. Happy New Year.
0: Happy New Year, yeah, what a new year it's been. If you could both just quickly introduce yourselves, tell me who you are and where you're calling in from today.
1: Sure, so I'm Paula Quachimone and please refer to me as Paula. Um, I am calling in from Cape Cod, Massachusetts because during COVID and quarantine time, I've been away from my home base which is at Boston University in Boston, Mass. And hunkered down here on the Cape, so close to the ocean and it's been a good place to sort of hibernate and just have family around and um, doing a lot of hybrid teaching from from here.
0: The Cape sounds like the ideal place to be right now. So, so relaxing. It's been a blessing. (laughs) How about you, David?
2: Uh, I'm David Proctor. I am actually dialing in from Manchester in England. Uh, My connection to Paula is through Boston University. So that's how we know each other. Um, I attended BU from 2004 to 2009 feels like a lifetime ago now. But uh, yeah, Manchester is a good place to be during lockdown. It just rains a lot here. So not quite as enjoyable.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we had a, a little bit of fun figuring out the different time zones and getting a time that worked because David is, yeah, all the way out in Manchester. Um, but I'm so happy we were able to make it work. And I'm so happy we get to have this conversation on. Eating disorders in male athletes because it's still a very under discussed topic. And I want to start with you, David. I have a few questions specifically for you because you have been so open about sharing your experience with an eating disorder as a collegiate athlete at BU. But before your BU experience, do you remember any warning signs or characteristics that would have pointed to disordered eating?
2: Never, actually. All the way through high school, all the way as I remember growing up, I never even really realized that food was a thing, you know, it was kind of just something you did, you had your meals with your family, and I'm very, very blessed to have a mother who did absolutely everything for me as I was growing up, so meals just appeared on the table, you ate them, and you got on with it, you know, and as you're growing up, you're just, you're growing up, so weight isn't really an issue either, you don't really think about that, and you know, when you're young enough, and you're, particularly in terms of sport, when you're running you're racing you're competing you're kind of running off natural talent and you're always developing anyway your natural growth is happening so you know you don't never really thought about food and nutrition as being a contributing factor to anything really
0: so then you were recruited boston full ride scholarship do you remember when you got there was there a moment when this eating disorder sparked up or
2: was it more of a gradual
0: growing of this disorder
2: yeah no it was a a very particular moment and I tell this story with you know a bit of caution sometimes just because it makes my coach sound like a, a worse person than he was and I just want to preface this by saying the man was amazing he was my hero um and I really respected absolutely everything he did and he never said anything with any malice whatsoever um but there was a time sort of well within my first semester probably the first 10 or 12 weeks within the semester that I was getting used to American food, American portions, American dining halls. Um, And with it being the first time I was ever making those decisions, nutritional decisions for myself, I kind of was just eating as much as I could regularly, often. Um, And I had gained weight. Like, it's absolutely fine for me to admit I had gained weight. But my coach made a comment in front of the rest of my teammates about that, about the fact that I had gained weight. And it was done in a bit of a harsh way because in front of the whole team, he came over to me and pat me on the belly and said, Wow, you're enjoying that that dining hall food or something like that, and you victim of the freshman fifteen and all that kind of stuff. So humiliating moment, I think. At the time, he did it with the very best of intentions to make me feel, you know, like I wasn't just didn't get out of control and, and all the rest of it. But it was just a yeah, not a nice moment. But that's where I really felt to myself that I was letting the team down, letting myself down, letting my family down, being out here on full ride and kind of throwing it away just because I was slightly overweight.
0: Well, I really appreciated actually that you brought up that you really liked your coach and that you don't mean to blame your coach because I think that there often is finger pointing at specific coaches when there are a lot of factors that go into eating disorders. So I appreciate that you said that. and I wanted to highlight that a little bit more. Uh, do you remember this then developing from that comment? Was there a gradual growing process to you realizing that this was a big problem?
2: at first I didn't even think of it as a problem it was a necessary evil and anyone who knows me knows that everything about my personality is all or nothing Mm. so if I'm committing to doing something like I'm going to give it 110% or I'm not going to give any whatsoever so by the time my coach made that comment to me I instantly made that switch in my head and I think I dropped something like 20 pounds in the first two weeks just because I made that commitment in my head and I said right okay I'm overweight I need to weigh less I'm just going to do it I'm going to do whatever it takes So twenty pounds in two weeks, and then that that was to me just something that I needed to do. It was part of the sport. It was part of the 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 next level that I wanted to get to, and that was part of it. I didn't really feel like it became a problem until way further down the line when I realized I didn't quite have control over it anymore, and it wasn't necessarily the running and my performance that was driving my motivations.
0: I was listening to you both on the Spot On podcast recently, and one thing that was so interesting to me was how you spoke about how this eating disorder in a lot of way, it manifested in a very extreme way. You just used the term all or nothing. And I think that I haven't heard much about that from other athletes who've spoken about eating disorders. I think I often hear of this more gradual progression, maybe restricting certain food groups um, and like slowly more and more restriction. But it seems like you just stopped eating. Do you remember what you were thinking during that time. What thought process was going on in your head when you basically
2: just stopped eating? remember at this point I was on full ride and I'd never been away from home before. And I know how much tuition is at BU. So I felt under an incredible amount of pressure right from day one from showing up on campus because I was this person that the university had made an investment in. They were gonna pay me a lot of money to be there for four years to get my degree. And I had to perform. I felt like that's it, the amount of money they're paying for me. I need to do this, I need to get it right. I also need to not let my family down because they know I'm out here. They know I'm making this big life-changing decision to move to the US, so I better do everything I can to to make them proud. But then most of all, myself. You know, I I have had big dreams. I wanted to go to the Olympics. I wanted to do all this stuff. And if I let myself down by doing something that was hindering my performance, then, you know, I was letting myself down. So all these people that I just didn't want to let down, I wanted to perform and prove myself. Um, I, I just made that connection in my head that, okay, someone that I respect, someone in a position of power has come to me who knows the sport better than I do because he's been doing it for 30, 40 years, whatever it was. That person that I respect has told me something about my performance that is, is not right. What do I do to correct it? So I did everything I could to correct it, and I felt like I was doing the right thing. This was me being committed to my sport, dedicated to what I wanted to do, and it was keeping me on that trajectory towards making everybody proud and doing myself proud. It was a necessary evil, like I say.
0: Yeah, I I hear in in the word commitment, you are committed to your sport. So much of those characteristics that you often hear when athletes struggle with eating disorders that a lot of the characteristics in my experience that might make a successful athlete, that commitment also makes someone quote unquote successful at an eating disorder. So I'd love to bring Paula in on this. And if you if that's pretty constant when you're dealing with athletes dealing with eating disorders, whether those characteristics that David is describing are characteristics you often see.
1: Yes, they're very common characteristics, whether it's an athlete or a non-athlete actually, because it's part of the mindset that predisposes someone to um, getting you know very <clears throat> into the grips of an eating disorder, because the mindset that goes along with it, the path becomes very convoluted. It usually starts very, very well intentioned in the case of an athlete trying to be the best athlete they can be trying to earn the coach's attention and praise trying to earn that starting spot, at, you know, um, you know, uh, playing time, you know, on a variety of different sports, because we're not talking just about runners and, and, you know, distance runners and racing, we're talking about athletes in all sports, in all bodies, shapes and sizes. And so you know, it starts off very, very well-intentioned and that discipline and that commitment is very well-intentioned because that's what makes an elite athlete elite. That's how they got to the pinnacle of their sport and to earn a Division One scholarship, right? And so that's been a successful tool in their toolkit all along. But when, when the mindset starts to get... Um, you know, impacted by the disordered eating. And as someone starts restricting their food more and more, then their mindset gets impacted more negatively. And so it worsens the restriction and it increases the rigidity. And it that's what leads someone from disordered eating into an eating disorder. And so the psychological impact of the, this low energy availability state that's created when an athlete is training. Like David was running more mileage than he ever had in the UK, right? He was stepped it up. He was a D1 runner. So some of that weight gain he experienced was a gain in muscle mass, but the scale doesn't reflect that. And when you see a number on the scale, you just see, oh, that number is bigger than it was when I came here. And so, you know, that is feedback and that combination of overtraining and restrictive eating, he was under fueling, leads to this low energy availability state, which is the, the at the heart of the REDS model, the relative energy deficiency in sport. And that affects every organ system in your body. And we can talk about the physiologic and metabolic and hormonal complications, but the psychological con- consequences of the REDS state is what drives somebody, again, from a well-intentioned I need to get a handle on this. I need to improve my performance. I need to be the best version of myself and commit to my sport, to this disordered eating pattern, to ultimately a full-blown eating disorder before someone even knows that they're really in the grips of this.
0: So this is so interesting because I think often when we talk about eating disorders, we talk about maybe disordered eating causing REDS, relative energy deficiency in sports, but it seems like from what you're saying that there's this positive feedback loop where then that goes back, the the relative energy deficiency in sports affects your, your mentality, that goes back to further restriction.
1: Is that yeah. what you're saying? Yes. If you look at the REDS model, there's a beautiful diagram and at the center is a circle for the low energy availability state. And around it are all these bubbles of all the organ systems that are impacted negatively. There's also a similar version showing you the performance outcomes that are affected negatively, like your muscle strength and endurance. But if we speak about the physiology, it shows, you know, your cardiovascular system is impacted, your hematologic indices, like developing iron deficiency anemia, your bone health in osteopenia and stress fractures, your hormonal status. Females lose their menstrual cycle, men's testosterone takes a hit, and their sex drive plummets uh your gi tract slows down right every organ system your metabolic rate your metabolism is affected negatively all of those the arrow from low energy availability to all of those organ systems goes in that one direction but the psychological bubble has a double-headed arrow because Mm. your psychological state predisposes you to Reds because you know, anxiety, depression, OCD behaviors can ramp up an athlete's um stress and in their inability to cope and manage that stress oftentimes gets manifested in controlling their food environment or controlling their body shape and size or overtraining and compulsive exercise. So your psychological state predisposes you, but once you are in that low energy availability state, it worsens your psychological well-being. And there's the other headed arrow heading right back to your mental health. That's the only system that has a double headed arrow. And it's very, very important for people to understand that because most coaches, athletes, parents don't understand that at all and think that it's only um, a cause and not a consequence. And it's actually what worsens the disorder. So someone starting out as a kid, very well-intentioned, or starting out with clean eating, which becomes orthorexia, which then becomes anorexia or bulimia or binge eating, you see this very slippery slope of one progressing to the other. And without professional help, it's very, very difficult to even recognize it, let alone get out of that cycle.
0: That double-headed arrow is certainly something that is not widely known and talked about, I believe. And I know, Paula, that you experience these patterns you're talking about, specifically with David, you two met while he was a student-athlete at BU. How did that connection come to be?
1: So I met David, I think it was in October of his freshman year, and I think that was a very fateful connection. I'm very blessed that we found each other in this life to do this work together. Um, But I was giving a talk for the entire men's track and cross-country team, And, you know, just giving nutrition advice and making recommendations on how to fuel yourself, how to navigate the dining hall. And David came up afterwards and asked if we could do some one-on-one individual consultations. And that was really the whole point was to say, I'm here on campus. My door is open. If anybody feels like they need some tailored individual advice, like let's make it happen. And that's how we started working together. Um, But he came to me because he was on his weight loss journey and he wanted me to help him continue to lose weight and be more restrictive with his diet or more, you know, he really, well, I'll let him speak in his own words, but, you know, quickly just by having an open door and having a professional accessible to athletics, it allowed us to start doing really the work that that was really at hand. So David, you can tell from your side, the story is more interesting
2: yeah it's it was just that you know we talked about that double-headed arrow and that really is a feedback loop where if you start to lose a little bit of weight and you improve and people tell you you're looking better and your coach is approving you're going to keep doing it and you know it was a case of well if i'm there what if i just went there what if i just went there and just went there and kept on pushing those boundaries as far as i could and it would get to the point where you know i was trying to lose weight i was restricting my eating i was running more than i was so burning more calories and taking less in, but still not losing any weight and getting really frustrated with it. Like, why? How is this possible? And then I had a professional like Paula in front of me again, someone that I respected, someone with infinitely more experience than me, who in my eyes I could see as would help me. Obviously, there's something in the back of my mind that says, if you're not eating enough, you could die. (laughs) Like, that's always going on in the back of your mind. So Paula, to me, was kind of like that silver bullet where she could tell me how to lose weight and how to, to be even slimmer and run even faster, whilst restricting my food as well. I thought you had some kind of like magical answer to everything. And I thought you'd be the one to to tell me how to do it.
0: Well, how lucky that you two found each other. I mean, for, for both of you, but also for all of us interested in these topics, because now we get to have these conversations. And I know that while working of Paula David of course you went on to be an extremely successful athlete you were the first collegiate athlete in new england to break 4 the 4 minute um 4 minutes in the mile what did your relationship with food and body look like
2: for the rest of your collegiate career it was very up early. and down <laughs> because again if i'm like i said i'm all or nothing so i think as i began to make a a bit of a recovery from it and test myself and just see you know what 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 would my body do if i ate a little bit more you know like let's let's put my theories to the test i had this this fear the whole time that if i ate just a tiny little bit more then i'd suddenly gain like 20 pounds and be be not able to compete so i figure test myself let's let's test your theories let's see what happens so introduce a little bit more at lunchtime introduce a little bit more at breakfast time and kind of spread that out over the day and as i kept on testing myself i kept on realizing well actually the more i feel myself the more i perform and the better i perform so keep pushing that but then I, again i kind of kept on going and going and going and thinking well if i'm eating that much and, and performing that well why don't i just eat a bit more and i did gain quite a lot of weight still performed okay but maybe not as well as i could have and then had to kind of pull my weight back down again but then as I did that I kind of went too far and ended up going all the way back down again so eating disorders are always up and down that you're kind of you're doing well and then suddenly you're not and you're relapsing um but I think towards the end of my time there I kind of was making that connection where being strong being healthy fueling myself was when I was really performing well and my four minute mile came in my junior year and that was kind of junior year senior year my best two years um putting into practice everything that I'd learned
0: well, I also appreciate that you say it was up and down, because I think too often when we talk about eating disorders in athletes, and maybe just generally, we talk about you know sick and then recovered, and we don't talk about the reality of how it's really an up and down process. It's not that simple. But what we almost never talk about is the fact that eating disorders do not just impact female athletes. And I think there are lots of statistics on female athletes but not male athletes. Do any of you have any idea how prevalent this is? Maybe we can talk specifically male runners.
1: Yeah, I mean I'm not so good with quoting statistics off the top of my head, but I can tell you that we don't even have very good statistics to quote. So even the ones that are out there, we know that they're underestimates. I think especially for athletes and especially then for male athletes because you know the statistics usually only reflect people who come forward for Uh, treatment, or they reflect people who are aware of their signs and symptoms and are willing to report them in a survey. And so they're underreported in the general population. I believe for many reasons they're underreported by athletes because it's so Mm. conflated with this. This is just what I do. I'm an athlete. It's part of my commitment. There's, there's no perception that it's disordered behavior. And so, and we know that there are barriers to treatment in the general population and i believe that there are even heightened barriers for athletes because of things like scholarships and you know privacy or not wanting to appear sick or weak to a coach that people suffer in silence for a really long time and i think the barriers to treatment are even higher again in male athletes because there's less of a recognition that the behaviors are disordered or that even a male could have an eating disorder and so it delays help seeking and the shame and stigma around that as well as you know less uh, social support systems like guys don't really talk to other guys about this and so you know where are these conversations happening who is helping to normalize it or say yes what you're struggling with is real or you know this is not necessarily normal because What's happening is that while female athletes tend to be on people's radar screen more so, especially one who has lost a lot of weight and is appearing in a thinner body, that gets picked up by people's visual cues much more, whereas the male athletes are getting praised for getting that six pack of abs and for toning down and losing weight and hitting it harder in the gym. And so when you talk with male, like we had a paper that actually just came out at the beginning of this week about the male athletes experience with eating disorders. And it's really one of the first in the literature and the consistent theme of being praised for their harder workouts, their restrictive eating, the way their body is changing Yet they're in the throes of an eating disorder, which most of them didn't even realize at the time, but they're being praised for it and how much social media is driving them further and further down that path. Again, David, you can speak from your experience, but um, that's why I think we, you know, it's it's undetected and undertreated and underdiagnosed. That's the most I can tell you.
0: Yeah. yeah and we'll have that's to what link I that.
1: About- Sorry, go
0: ahead, David.
2: It It goes back to what I was saying before about, um, you know, I didn't even really realize that I had a problem. It just seemed like something that needed to be done. And that was really emphasized when I would come home at the holidays or in the summer break um, and be around my family and experience, you know, all these these behaviors, do all these things. My family show concern, particularly my mom would say, you know, is this healthy? Is this right? Is this what you should be doing? Is this how you're supposed to be eating? And I would just say, this is what dedicated athletes do. This is what Olympians do. This is how I have to be. Like, I would love to go to KFC with you, Mom, but I can't because I'm an athlete, that kind of thing. So you kind of you don't even realize it's a problem until it gets to the point where you're constantly in the back of the mind thinking, I could stop this at any time. I could stop this at any time. I'm an athlete. I'm doing it because I'm an athlete and I could stop whenever I like. And then suddenly you can't and then you realize, okay, you're in trouble now because it's not necessarily about the running and the performance anymore. It's about... numbers you're seeing on the scale. It's about what the mirror is looking like. It's about how your genes are fitting. And then you kind of just get all messed up into why you're actually doing it, what you're doing.
0: It's so interesting to me that that idea of this is what I do. I'm an athlete is perhaps heightened for men, or perhaps more accepted in men, by the way, you know, men versus women are socialized. And I'm also curious about the shame because I think eating disorders are very shameful disorders for anyone struggling with them there's a lot of you know trying to hide this disorder but I'm also wondering if that might be heightened in a man's experience because there is more of this focus on eating disorders connecting to women was that part of your experience at all David?
2: Yeah you almost had to do it secretly and it's it it's such a shame it's because if you are seen to be experiencing these things and doing these things then you kind of behaving like a woman as if that's something to be ashamed of as if that's a shameful way to live your life i I, I don't know um but it wasn't it was seen as a women's problem and if you were exhibiting that you know getting a a salad for lunch is such a feminine thing to do like why are you behaving like that this is a men's team and there's very much you know bravado on a team like this. an individual sport but you're still part of a team particularly for like cross-country um and that that was definitely part of it i had to do a lot of it in secret and every time I had that conversation with Paula and I stopped by the office, no one else would know about it. This battle was going on in the background. Um, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a, a public thing that I felt very
1: comfortable with at the time. It makes you feel very alone. And that's what the eating disorder does, is it isolates you from support and from people who can truly help you. And so it's one of the signs when you're deeper and deeper in trouble. Um and it's one of the things that we work on in treatment is, is to how to emote and how to communicate and how to, you know, engage in talk therapy to process all of this because holding it inside and suffering in silence is a big part of the disorder because the more isolated you are, the more the eating disorder is your best friend. It's all you trust.
0: And I'm happy that you started to talk about that treatment because I wanted to get into that a little bit with you, Paula, and, and also David. But I know, Paula, one of your of your many accolades is that you're a senior consultant for Walden Behavioral Care, which is a treatment center for individuals living with eating disorders. And I know part of your work involves the goal program, which is focused on athletes. Can you talk a little bit more about how treatment or why it's important for treatment to be specific to athletes or is this important at all?
1: No, we've actually done research about, you know, building the justification for athlete-specific eating disorder treatment programs because we, we started that work by talking with female athletes. And now we have this companion paper that just came out this week about male athletes, and I'm more convinced of it now than ever. But even after we did our work with female athletes, seeing that, you know, there are some factors related to eating disorder onset in the experience of the eating disorder that are universal. But then there are others that are very unique to the sport environment. You know, the pressures of performance, the uniforms, the commentators on your body, certain sports that have weigh-ins, right? I could go on and on, scholarship pressures, whatever. So, you know, when you think about an athlete being in treatment with non-athletes, sometimes the issues and the factors are really quite different and need to be addressed in that sports. Like, you know you know, if, if, if a dietician or a therapist says, you know, well, you just need to stop running and that's the only way you're going to get through your eating disorder. That's not an option for an athlete. And so you need providers who are first and foremost trained in eating disorders, but also who understand sport and who understand the interactions with coaches and teammates and traveling on the road and performance measures. You can't give standard advice, you know, cookie cutter advice that is not suited to the pressures that the athlete is dealing with by living in this environment of division one or professional sport or high school sport. So, and so we built the goals program modeled very much after the the first program in the country that I became aware of that was doing this was the victory program at McCallum place in St. Louis. And they started a conference called the eating disorders and sport conference. And I went to the very first inaugural one And I saw what they were doing and the dialogue that they were generating through their conference. And I came back to Boston. I was like, we need this here. It can't only reside in St. Louis. And so I had started consulting with Walden already. And when I finished that first initial project, they asked me if I would stay on. I said, I'll stay on on one condition, that we build an athlete program. Because, you know, being in the university setting and, you know, Boston University is only one of dozens in the city with student athletes that could all benefit from these services. And so that's how we built the goals program. And I'm really, really proud of that work. And, you know, the researcher and me said it's not enough just to do clinical practice, but we really need to collect outcomes data. And we need to publish this because we need to get this into the literature. If we're ever going to have momentum behind, you know, athlete specific treatment, we have to show that athletes benefit. You know, if you build it, they will come and that also they will benefit from it. And we have positive outcomes. And that's that's what we've done. So. It's been a very exciting partnership and journey. And but as of now, I there are maybe three or four athlete-specific programs around the country, still not even, not even the tip of the iceberg. Um, and and so, you know, but there are a lot of people in private practice who are working at the outpatient setting in terms of nutrition and therapy therapy who have sports and eating disorders training and those are those providers are doing great work as well. But when when an athlete needs a higher level of care, that's what the organizations like Victory and the Goals program, they're at a higher level of care at like the intensive outpatient or or residential uh, treatment programs.
0: And you mentioned the importance of research and, and learning more, publishing more about athletes and eating disorders which in my opinion, it seems like there has been much more in the past few years. We're talking about this a little bit more. Where do the gaps still lie? Where do you see more room for
1: research? Uh, The gaps are huge. I mean, in eating disorders, a lot of the research has come from the medical model and the psychology, um, you know, the psych providers. And so it's much more in their literatures than in the nutrition literatures, So, getting more about the role of the dietitian and the importance of nutrition on the multidisciplinary treatment team for eating disorders. And then, when you put the athletes and eating disorders into the mix, again, there's a big contribution from the exercise science community, which has helped us with the Reds model, for example, and extending that beyond the original model, which was the female athlete triad. So, you know, but from my perspective, the voice of the dietitian has not been strong in the literature on either of these you know, niches of practice. And so, um, you know, there's a lot that, you know, we don't have best practices for treating eating disorders and athletes yet. We need to define that because we need to have better, more engagement in treatment and we need data to collect and to evaluate the outcomes. But even you know we have a long way to go on prevention and education and awareness building and access to professionals i mean we have now credentials like you can become a certified eating disorder registered dietitian you can become a certified specialist in sports dietetics you know so there's there are these advanced credentials but not every dietitian and not every therapist has this specialty it requires ongoing training and, you know, commitment to continuing education and advanced credentials. So, you know, we need to increase access to providers, but we also really need, like, even in terms of screening and detection, there are, you know, we have now the REDS model for clinical assessment of relative energy deficiency in sport, but it's still in its infancy. I mean, REDS was just published in 2014 and the... The models for defining, you know, if someone is at low, medium, high risk, and if they should take a break from training and when they're allowed to return Mm -hmm. to play, those are not as sensitive and specific as we would like them to be yet. They're better than nothing, but we're not finished researching and developing them. We don't have eating disorder um, screening tools for male athletes yet. Supposedly some are in development. I'm dying for them to come out. You know, the tools that we have Some of them are validated for athletes, others are not. And the ones that are validated for athletes largely have been validated in female athletes, some at the high school level, some at the collegiate level. So you see there are many cracks that an athlete could fall through. I mean, but even something as simple as screening for eating disorders um, and for disordered eating risk on a pre-participation physical, like there are some existing tools that simply aren't used widely, you know, beyond like measuring someone's height and weight and computing a BMI, or sometimes those things are only done freshman year and never repeated unless you're in a contact sport because they're really looking at concussions on pre-participant, you know, so there's just not a widespread even awareness for the importance of screening and detection. But the other thing is once you detect someone at risk, what do you do? Where do you send them? Do you have an infrastructure on your campus within sports medicine? Do you have an eating concerns team? Do you have a sports dietitian? Do you have sports psychologists? Are you referring people? Like you have to have a plan. You have to have an action plan to follow through because screening is only as good as the referral and the action plan that follows it. So we have a long way to go because the access to nutrition professionals and mental health professionals, I'll, if you just use you know, collegiate sport as an example, fewer than 10% of NCAA institutions have a full-time dietitian hired inside athletics. So that means over 90% do not. That's a massive chasm. Yikes. Of unmet need. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, with COVID and athletic budgets being cut, I mean, it's a scary, scary time because student athletes are under more stress than ever. David used the word relapse, and he talked about the cycle of the experience. Relapse is a common and normal and expected part of an eating disorder. It is not like flipping a light switch and saying, Mm -hmm. okay, I'm recovered. I'm done with this disorder now. It's a journey of, on average, about five years. I mean, David and I worked together for the entire five or six years. He was at BU. We're still in each other's lives, supporting each other. He's still racing at very high levels, you know, world levels, global competitor. Um, And so the need is chronic and ongoing, and the unmet need is really, really high.
0: So much need. But, Paula, I I know it sounds kind of overwhelming, I guess, all the things that need to happen. But when you're describing these steps and, you know, screening and kind of these more tangible tools – honestly, I so appreciate and I think so many people would or will who listen, because I don't think we often talk about like these tangible steps and like these like screening tools. When we talk about eating disorders and athletes, it's kind of nebulous and like what types yeah. of conversations do coaches need to have? And the fact that you just laid it out there in, you know, these steps and tools
1: is super helpful. And I hope more programs take that up. Because unfortunately, a lot of people think that you can see an eating disorder with your naked eye and you can't, you simply cannot. People that you esteem and they look like they're at the pinnacle of their career and they've got it all and they're successful, they can be crumbling from the inside out and you have no idea. And what makes it so dangerous is that others look at that person and go, wow, they're so successful. Look at what they're doing. If they're doing this and you know, I notice like, she never comes to team dinner, or he never eats lunch, or he never indulges in sweets at the tailgate. Maybe I should start doing that. Or even worse, when they see one of their teammates purging and they think maybe I should try that because they literally think it's the secret to their success. And that's how these disordered behaviors become very contagious within a team because it gets role modeled. And that's what brings us to the conversation of what is the culture on that team? What are the coaches aware of? What are the coaches drawing a zero tolerance line about? Whether it's comments in the locker room, body shaming, food shaming, like David says, judging what's on someone else's plate. You know, there's so much that a coach can do in terms of prevention and awareness and taking a hard stance. Like, we don't talk like that here. You know, or having a listening ear when they hear athletes talking in a certain way, having a private conversation and expressing care and concern and laying it out there saying, like, I've heard you talk this way about your body. It's concerning to me. Can we have a conversation and trying to lead that athlete to open up and maybe uncover their need for help and how you can connect them to help? So there's so much because there's so much misinformation about what an eating disorder looks like and what an eating disorder doesn't look like. You know, I've heard coaches say things like, well, I coach male athletes, so I don't need to worry about this. Absolutely. You do, you know, this doesn't just reside with runners and swimmers and wrestlers. It happens with football and lacrosse and soccer and ball sports, hockey. It happens, you know, there's a concept in, in nutrition, especially when you're working in the hospital with infectious diseases, it's called universal precautions where you should assume that every patient whose room you're walking into has a contagious condition. And so you need to take universal precautions and protect yourself. It's very relatable now in COVID, right? We have to pretend like everybody's possibly COVID positive, even if they're asymptomatic. So we have to wear our masks and socially distance. We need to extend that to eating disorders. And we should assume that every athlete on our team is potentially vulnerable and they could be struggling and we have no idea. So when a coach makes a comment and pats an athlete on the belly and says, you know, oh, I got the freshman 15 there as well-intentioned as and as whimsical as he may think he's being, you don't know the psychological mindset of that athlete and how Vulnerable they feel, or how uncertain do I really belong here? Am I going to really earn a spot on this team? Do I deserve this scholarship? You know, all of the precursors maybe they're anxious, maybe they're homesick, they don't have a support network, whatever it is. Maybe they just got an F on their math test and they're wondering if they even belong at this university. When a comment like that is made, it can be a tipping point. It's not the sole aggressor, but it could be a tipping point And we we step on these landmines all the time, just like saying, oh, David, you look great, man. You've dropped so much weight. You look amazing. We think we're complimenting, but it's fueling an eating disorder. And so until we adopt these universal precautions and think carefully about what we say to athletes and or to people in general and how we comment on people's appearance or how we comment on people's food choices, and you, that's why social media is such a big driver of this, because People are willing to say things on social media that they might not say to your face. And so I think this concept of universal precautions could be really useful to do more education around just to build awareness that we really need to say what we mean and mean what we say. Because athletes are very prone to misinterpreting what their coach Mm -hmm. says because they're desperate to please the coach. I mean, David has often said when we've spoken, you know, if my coach told me to lose five pounds, I'm going to lose 10 pounds. And then when I lose 10 pounds, I'm going to be like, how can I lose five more? And you just keep trying to get closer and closer to that line. And especially when you think you're feeling great and you're invincible, you see how this can really take over and go down that slippery slope.
0: Yeah, this idea of universal precautions so important I think to all athletic programs and I want to bring it back quickly to David's story because I'm wondering you know we're talking about the power of language David when you were struggling were there any men who male athletes who were talking publicly about their experiences
2: no because this is a woman's problem some men wouldn't talk about it even if they were going through the same thing and I, I recognize some behaviors on some of the other guys on the team and I would try and do the right thing and, and just say, you know, is everything all right? Like, are you are you comfortable? Are you, are you is everything okay in your head? Are you are you happy with your training and all the rest of it? And then they would just be like, yeah, 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 I'm fine. I just fancied this today. Like, I just I just wanted to do this. But I could see the exact same behaviors as when when I was there. And you know, the problem that you you have in trying to just assume that male athletes are different from female athletes is actually they could get their feedback from each other. Because just going back to what you were saying before, Paula, about you know looking at what other people on the team were doing. There were women on our team that had the same sort of issues and I could see what they were doing. But the more restrictive they were with their eating, the lighter they got and the faster they ran. So that's, like, that's feedback that's impossible to ignore, especially when my goal was to try and run as fast as possible. It might not have been something that any of the other men were doing, but I could see that it was working for the women. That's where I got my feedback from and I went for it. So it's it's you've got to treat athletes the same. The, the gender really is irrelevant when it comes to performance in sports.
0: So there were not many people talking about this, at least on the men's team. When did you decide that it was important to talk about it?
2: Like I said, it was when I actually realized that I didn't have control over it anymore. And it was instant in that my behaviors changed in that moment of, of my coach patting me on the belly. But the actual you know severity of it did grow over time and my focus really shifted from being trying to lose weight to run fast to being the number that i would see on the scale and i you know i would be so restricted that the difference between 0.1 of a pound would would completely ruin my day if i weighed 150.1 pounds terrible day if i weighed 149.9 amazing day best day ever that was just where it went so my focus became on the numbers And then I completely lost control over why I was doing it. So I was restrictively eating so that I could keep that number on the scale as low as possible because somewhere along the way I made that connection. And then it became about calories because calories equals numbers on scales and mileage that you're running It all comes together and it became focused on that. And, you know, I I went home for Christmas one time and, and basically indulged on Christmas Day, came out to run a couple of days later, having not eaten anything for the following couple of days to punish myself for how much I ate over Christmas and passed out at the side of the road in the middle of a long run. And when you wake up and there's an ambulance there and there's cars all around, you think I've been hit by a car, (laughs) like something happened. And you slowly realize like I I was in the middle of a long run. I had no energy and I passed out and I did it because I didn't think I deserved food for two days after Christmas. And that in my head then at that point was like, that's, that's not normal. That's it. that's not right. I shouldn't, I shouldn't be behaving that way. I've got to do something about it. Because even though I had that episode, for the next couple of days, I was still trying to punish myself for what I'd done for Christmas. And by the time I came back to school in the January, that's, I think I spent more time with you than ever at that point, Paula, because I was I was lost and I didn't know where, I was, where my focus should be.
0: That's such a powerful story. Thank you for sharing that. And you use the term or the phrase gender is irrelevant. And th- I mean, that makes sense when you're talking about these thought processes and this kind of a obsession with deserving food and the relationship between eating and how much you're running and numbers, it's really relatable to, I think, if you talk to any athlete who struggled with an eating disorder. So, if gender is irrelevant to, you know, maybe a lot of the characteristics of an eating disorder, how do we change the dialogue that an eating disorder or the common thought that an eating disorder looks a certain way, that it looks like, white, small bodied cisgender women.
1: We need a lot of education. We need a lot of, you know, campaigns and messaging. We need a lot of training. You know, we've been trying to get on conferences of like, you know, coaching conferences. And, you know, you know, David and I have spoken to groups of dietitians in several venues. And, you know, we spoke at the National Athletic Trainers Association, you know, talking to athletic trainers and but you know, we need to be in front of coaches. We need to, you know, really, we need coaches and parents, excuse me, athletes and parents to also understand this, but we really need to change the dialogue. I think as challenging as social media can be we can harness it for good you know and and get more out there and so more athletes sharing their stories on social media more people being outraged when they see things like Mary Kane's story and saying Mm -hmm. this is not okay and then for people like me to jump in and say by the way this doesn't just happen to female athletes and you know for David to have his voice and I spoke with you before the show Emma about Patrick uh, Devaney a football player positioning his voice and I think you know, as Rachel Style has done with her book, we need more books on this topic. Um, we need more and more athletes coming forward. But we can't wait until people have, you know, uh, experiences like David did. I mean, he had a warning sign. And, you know, I've consistently hear myself saying things like, are we waiting for someone to die before we act on this? You know, eating disorders research are woefully underfunded compared to other public health problems. Um, And so we need to step up the research. We need to get more papers into the literature, but we, we have to disseminate and get it out there you know, among other professionals into the general population. We cannot continue to let it be something that people whisper about and aren't. You know, we have to normalize it like this happens. It happens to anybody. It can happen to anybody's parent or child or teammate or partner. And we need to normalize it and say, you know what? there's a treatment protocol and there are providers to help just like you have an ACL tear or concu- concussion and we know who to send you to and refer you to. We need that for eating disorders and we need to have that action plan lined up and it, and it need, we need to remove the stigma of, you know, help seeking for mental illness in general. But as much as we continue to whisper butter or don't use that word or, you know, keep it in, in the shadows, that's not helping anybody. Um, I mean, I remember Emma when David and I gave our very first interview in terms of speaking out about this, it was with WBUR on the Here and Now segment with Robin Young. And we were sitting in the studio, the three of us, and, you know, Robin Young, you know, very accomplished reporter in the media, big, big name. And, you know, I remember she looked at David and she said, David, what is it like suffering with this? I mean, it's a woman's disease. And I just... Cringed in my skin I mean you know and it just shows the lack of information in how strong and how pervasive that bias and stereotype is and that she felt comfortable actually saying that to him and calling it out in this Wbur interview she didn't think there was anything wrong with that statement whatsoever and it just reflects the prevailing social thought about this and I, was so taken aback by that comment, and I remember, you know, David responded, and then I just had to to jump in and, you know, use the voice of the professional. But I was really blown away by that, and I don't think a whole lot has changed. That was probably what David in two thousand and nine, and I don't think a whole lot has changed since then. And that's why we need more research and more brave people like David coming forward and saying, "Me too," you know. I mean, I wrote, I wrote a when the Mary Kane. Uh, story broke, I wrote a point of view for Boston University, and I referred to it as, you know, a Me Too movement in sport. I know a lot of people also jumped on that, but it's exactly what we have here, and we need a lot more of the male athlete voices being willing to say Me Too.
0: Yeah, I mean, and you're both doing such important work around this topic to say Me Too and to change the prevailing thought on eating disorders and how they can and do affect everyone. So I want to thank you, and I want to begin to wrap up because I know Paula, you have another call coming up. But I'm curious, David, where are you at in your training right now? Because I know you've been training at a pretty high level still.
2: Trying to. I'm a few years older than I've ever been, so <laughs> it's uh, it's not quite as easy these days. I get one or two small injuries that I'm trying to trying to work through. But yeah, I'm still I'm still at the top of my game as far as I'm concerned. I still train. More than seven times a week, twice a day sometimes. I train with a proper Olympic group in Manchester and we're all working hard. And it's an Olympic year still because we didn't have the Olympics last year. So you never know. Um, but yeah, I, it, I always think about this and, and you know, I could have gone down a very, very different path had I not had the support that I needed because you get into your own head and you start, you know, going through through things in your mind and coming up with your own conclusions. And just to age myself a little bit, it was almost before the age of Google. So, you know, as dangerous as Google can be sometimes in terms of learning things for yourself, I really had nothing at my disposal aside from libraries or word of mouth or rumor that would go around the team. So I could have ended up in a very, very difficult place and never quite recovered or never run again. And I know people that have gone through this and never, ever run again. So it's just a... You know, if I've got a message, the word that Paula does, having someone like Paula that you can trust psychologically more than anything just to talk about it and bash out ideas and come up with ways of improving things is so important. It's so important. And to know that 90% of collegiate places still don't have that kind of support, that's scary because I can't even imagine how many people were at that same crossroads and went a different way to me.
0: Yeah, that 90% statistic makes me cringe. <laughs> that's terrifying. And I wish you so much luck going into this Olympic year. What event are you um, trying for?
2: It depends where my training takes me. Sometimes okay. I end up doing a bit more speed and strength work, and I do sort of 800 meters. And other times I end up doing sort of the mile or the two mile or maybe the 5K, something like that. So it's, it all depends on how my training goes between now and the summer.
0: Well, best of luck. I'll have to keep following along and, and see what happens if you're training. And before we wrap up, I know we have to get off soon, but I'd like to ask everyone, why is sport a powerful platform for social change?
1: Wow. Well, I'm I'm a mother of three athletes. And so it's just been such an amazing, um, stable factor in the lives and the raising of my children. And the the opportunities it's afforded them and the social connect the social connections and networks they've built, not only with teammates but with coaches. It's how they're learning about the world and you know what's role modeled for them. And they do learn the discipline and commitment and hopefully it's a very healthy balance and they learn how to cope with failures as well as successes. And I just think it's such a powerful tool um, because no matter how you move your body, it's something that is part of our wellness and longevity. And so you know, there's trying to make sport more and more available and accessible in its own right is such an important social tool. So I just, I think so much goodness and richness and opportunity lies there um, that it just, again, creates opportunity for social change and leadership.
0: Totally. I love that. How about you, David?
1: One of the biggest
2: things that I see as problems, and this is true, I think, both sides of the Atlantic. It's kind of the way that people view each other in terms of a social hierarchy and who's superior and who's inferior to everyone else. You know, that leads to a lot of issues for people of color, for women, for gay men and women, all these kinds of things. And I think sport is that one place where just being a human being is very leveling. It's a great leveler of people. And I think, you know, I love the phrase run like a girl. You know, like if you if you're you can be a strong, fierce woman and you can run. And if I ever have a daughter, I'm going to raise her exactly that way. Like run like a girl, be strong, be fierce, be powerful. And the same for for people of color in in sports. They are just as successful, if not more successful. So proves to everyone that they're absolutely equal and should be equal with everyone else. And the same for, for gay men and women. They perform in sport and they compete and they're equal And actually they can be superior as well. So I think sport is a great leveler and it proves to everyone that no one's above
1: anyone else and everyone should just be happy that we're all in the same boat. A beautiful comment. I would include all different abilities too. When you look at all of the opportunities for athletes of different abilities, that was a really beautiful comment.
0: That was beautiful. You two are both so insightful and intelligent. I feel like I could talk to you both forever and we didn't even begin to go into Paula's story and all of the incredible work you've done. So I'll have to link to some other podcasts you've been on and some of your work in the show notes, but I just want to thank you so much for speaking with me today and both of you for the incredible work you continue to do.
1: Thank you so much. It's really a pleasure and happy to provide more resources and follow up. And um, thank you so much for having us.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Social Sport. Like I said at the top, it has been an incredible honor to host these past five conversations on REDS and eating disorders in sport. This is a topic that I am incredibly passionate about and it is immensely important. If you have also enjoyed these conversations, feel free to let me know at Social Sport Pod on Instagram. The best way to support the show is to go over to Apple Podcasts subscribe to Social Sport, and leave a rating and a review. Thank you so much for tuning in. Stay sporty and keep resisting.